reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hear now God's Word. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But wherever, the, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. We are headed toward our 24th anniversary as a church this June. In March, I marked the 39th anniversary of my ordination to the ministry. Nearly 23 of those years have been spent here at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nacogdoches. And while the majority of those years in ministry contain many, many joys and blessings, nevertheless, sprinkled throughout those 39 years are some very difficult days. The kinds of days and weeks where one might wonder if it's worth it. The kinds of days and weeks where you might be tempted to quit. Marinell and I will be celebrating our 49th wedding anniversary in August of this year. Those 49 years, like the 39 years of wedding uh, of ministry, have been mostly good days, and like the church family, our family has also had moments of challenge, of struggle, of sorrow. But even in the midst of unhappiness, perhaps especially in times of unhappiness, love is tested. Love is made manifest. Like faith and hope, if we can only love in the good times then it's a very limited value. But in the difficult days, faith, hope, and love sustain us. They get us to the other side. You've heard me say many, many times that we are all broken people trying to follow a Savior who is rescuing us from our brokenness. We fail each other and we fail Him, but He never fails us. 
Every problem, every heartache, every anxiety in your life is either the result of your sins or someone else's sins or both. And there are so many sins, and thus we are told that love covers a multitude of sins. Aren't you thankful for sin-covering love? Aren't you glad that while we were yet sinners, Christ, because of his great love for us, died for us? We've been a church family for about 26 years, counting mission church days, and we can't do that for 26 years without learning some things. If we were to do it all over again, God forbid, uh, we would probably do a few things differently. That's an inescapable concept. We can't get from here to there without some failures and without some tears. For me, it seems that I have to learn most things the hard way. Uh, Most journeys are that way. We grow weary. Sometimes we get lost, and we certainly always need help. But this is the only way to get from here to there. We learn both positively and negatively. We learn some things the easy way, vicariously. We learn some things the hard way, but learning is essential to growth, to sanctification, to maturity. We grow in wisdom, or we should, by trial. To be, uh, to be tried by fire is to be tested. Our perspective on difficulty must be that we see God in the difficulty. Joseph is a great example of this. And so this is all preface. I want to acknowledge all of this sort of sad and negative stuff up front today. Partly because it's simply a means of our facing reality. But more importantly, it is a means of providing a backdrop for us to see something much brighter, more beautiful, happy, and even glorious. So, to this cheerier task, I now turn. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, like the Ten Commandments, is one of those great summary passages of Scripture. It boils things down for us. It helps us to focus on what is important. It helps us set our priorities in the right place. The Ten Commandments themselves are summarized by Jesus when he tells us that the greatest commandments are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and one like unto it, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so I would like to make a few observations about these things. In the life of a family, in the life of a church, which is a family, these are the three things, faith, hope, and love, that hold us together, that move us forward. But in order to understand this famous chapter on love, we need to back up a bit and see the broader context that it is set in. So today we'll look very briefly at chapter 12, and then chapter 13, the one we just read, and and then a bit in chapter 14 to see the context of this chapter on love. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 
uh, again, this, this context in uh, the apostle is addressing a church that he loves, but also a church like all of our churches that inevitably needs some adjustments, some instruction, some correction, and some reminders. So in chapter 12, verse 7, we are told that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. It's not given to us just to bless us and to make us feel good and to to somehow um, satiate us and gratify us. The Spirit is given to us so that we might be a blessing to others. Um, In other words, our individual gifts are for the general good of the church or the community of God's people. We are members of one another. Verse 11 tells us in chapter 12 that one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. The gifts that you have were given to you by God. Instead of grumbling about the gifts you don't have, we're called to give thanks for the gifts that we do have. Then verse 11, again, uh, building on that, the Spirit is sovereign in His work of distribution. It's It's as if we all had learned to play a different musical instrument, and then we come together to practice our parts. My recollection is, I think this illustration came from N.T. Wright. Um, then we get all this together, and then it starts to fit. That is, if everyone is doing what they're supposed to do. Every instrument needs every other instrument to make itself complete. There are different uh, instruments and different styles of playing, but there is only one composer and one conductor. The Spirit has assembled this particular orchestra knowing all of your limitations, all of your challenges. Some are better at their gifts than others. Some are more developed. But the Spirit has assembled this particular orchestra. Then uh, when we use the word members, uh, when we say we're members of one another, it comes from this passage where it means a limb or a bodily organ. A single body with many parts, with many members. Our individual identity, though, is only fully realized in the context of our being connected to and being members of the one body. If we took any of those parts and cut them off and set them aside, they're just dead. They're of no value whatsoever by themselves. It is the Spirit that baptizes us, places us into the body, connects us to Christ. And thus baptism is the sign of our having been engrafted into Him. By the way, radical individualism, which is another way of saying selfishness, is always destructive to the community. We want to do our own thing. And that's true in your family, and it's also true in this family in the church. Now, verse 26 tells us that we are so connected to one another that, quote, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so every member 
matters. Every part matters. You matter. We are always connected to one another. We need one another. That's The Holy Spirit thinks that's the case, whether I think it's the case or not. And this should humble each of us. This is the backdrop for what, what is now presented in chapter 13. And while we often use 1 Corinthians 13 in a standalone way, for example, in a wedding, and that's fine, it's important for us to remember that it doesn't stand by itself. The love that he is about to talk about is the love that he is describing that ought to be true of a church, ought to be true of a body of Christ. So in chapter 13, the use of our gifts, again, is discussed in 12 through 14, but sandwiched in between is this exposition on the subject of love. If we're to have healthy churches, then it is critical for us to come to understand the biblical meaning of love, to see it as the goal, to see it as the measure And in fact, to establish it as the priority. Because if you don't have this, you don't have anything. It doesn't matter what kind of building you have, how good your singing is, how much you give, how much is in the bank, how many missionaries. All of that is is built upon this foundation of the essential quality of love. This is how the world's going to know that we're Christians. And this is what we are called to. It is central. We may not limit the word love to a sentimental or romantic feeling, though it often includes those feelings. This is a love that requires commitment. Isn't that what you want in a marriage? Not just the occasional good feelings when it suits you, but promises, vows, commitments. On those days when it doesn't feel so great, there's still a commitment at the heart of what we're doing. It's not rooted in how I happen to feel at any particular moment. It's rooted in promises we've made to each other, a commitment to one another. We do that in membership vows. It carries with it duty. It carries with it responsibility. Duties and responsibility. You know, if we think of privileges, we think we kind of lighten up, right? We kind of smile about a privilege. It's like getting dessert. But if we mention duties and responsibilities, the eyebrows go down just a bit because we know this is serious. This is going to cost something. This means I have to sacrifice to do my duty, to meet my responsibilities. But in order to have the privileges that go with being in the Christ, duties and responsibilities come with that. Without this component, our gifts are worthless. It's kind of like having a toy that needs batteries, but you don't have any bat- you don't have any batteries. All of our little loves are like candles compared to this love, which is like the sunlight. This love, this love that's being talked about in 1 Corinthians 13 involved doing things that cost us something. This love is essential for community living and true worship. Verses 1 through 3, we're not going to reread all this. You're familiar with this passage, but it insists on how vital love is. 
Because without it, nothing else matters. Mature, godly, self-sacrificing love is the essential fruit of faith. And in fact, if you don't have it, First John tells us, then you don't really have faith. You've got some, you got a counterfeit. If you don't fervently love the brethren, I'm talking about all those unlovable brethren that are sitting around you, that are hard to love sometimes. If you don't fervently love those, those are the ones God put in your life and my life to love, then you don't really have faith. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. So husbands, wives, and children, this is the goal of all that you do every day. You've heard me say a lot recently, your house and this house should be a place of loving communion, a common union. Everything you do should be contributing to that, and the devil can use any one thing in your house to break that apart, to kill you, to separate you, which is what death is. That's the opposite of communion. What makes communion happen is love, which is another way of saying self-sacrifice, giving of yourself. Mature, godly, self-sacrificing love is the essential fruit of our faith, and this is the common, this is the goal of the church to be this place of loving communion. When we come to the communion table, this is a snapshot, this is a picture of what ought to be true all the time, seven days a week. 24 hours a day. Do we do it perfectly? No. That's why we come back here and start our week again, remembering why we're here and what we're to be doing. We're to be loving him and we're to be loving one another. Love God, love your neighbor. If if you're not doing that, then all you're doing here in a few minutes is eating bread and drinking wine. Well, it's not really all you're doing. If you're not going out and loving, then you're actually eating bread and drinking wine and that's a judgment on you. Verses 4 through 7 describe love itself. Each line is clear. We should think about how how we see each of these qualities in Jesus. We should think about how we see or don't see them in ourselves. We should think about what our home and our church community looks like when these things are practiced. Love is kind. Love is patient. All the things that are listed here. This is how we know that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Because these are the qualities of Christ. This is how he loved us. It's not enough to have good feelings about each other. In fact, if that's all we're after, it's entirely possible that we will not love other people at all. He who spares the rod, for example, hates his child. Love always seeks the good of its object. It's doing for someone what they need, not necessarily what they want at any given moment. It's possible, you see, to seek your favor at your expense. Just tell you what you want to hear because that's easier on me. Does that make sense? That's not real love. Real biblical love always involves giving. It always involves sacrifice. It requires patience, It requires, which is sacrifice. God so loved the world that he 
gave His only begotten Son. Husbands, love your wives how? The way Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. By the way, that doesn't mean Jesus is pandering to us and and trying to say, what can I do to make you happy and get a smile on your face? Jesus loves us when He disciplines us, when He tells us no. When He corrects us, He loves us. And He also gives us a lot of things that we like. Verse 8 through 13 explains that love is one of the things that will last into God's new world, the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, it matters far more than the things that will pass away. This includes many of the things that you and I tend to get upset about. Those are all going to go away. They're temporary. It even includes faith and hope. More on that in a moment. Now, there are many impressive things that Christians do. There are many impressive things that you do. Many impressive things that the church has done, but none of them amount to anything without love. That's the message of this text. And the exercise of any spiritual gift is only noise without love. I often think about people not coming to church or participating in things. And it's not so much that I'm upset that they're not here. It it, it troubles me because I don't know why they don't want to be here. Why isn't that the desire? Why isn't that something you really want? Why is this so hard? If I can say the same thing about myself, how come I find it so hard to read my Bible or to pray? Have you ever failed to read your Bible and pray in a day? Did you regret that? Do you regret that now? Have you ever read your Bible and prayed and regretted that? You see how irrational sin is and how irrational we can be? The very thing that we know would actually bless us and make us happier and better people and mature, we don't do. Now, in the top three things that get us from here to there, where you know, as we grow and walk with the Lord, Paul tells us that faith, hope, faith and hope are essential. We all walk by faith in something or in someone. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. We believe Him. We believe His Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word, word of God. We believe it even when we don't understand it or we don't see how it's going to work out. Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And faith is what enables us to step out and to trust. To do what he says, not because we always understand exactly how it works, but because he said it and that settles it. Now, this isn't blind faith, it's not a leap of faith, but it's a faith that is rooted in solid truth. God has proved himself faithful over and over and over. The Bible is full of demonstrating that. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. But when we forget this, when we start believing in ourselves or something else, then trouble begins. Faith looks to God and trusts him for everything. It's what you're doing. Is that what you're doing in your current circumstances? Whatever is going on in your life right now, are you trusting him? I mean earnestly trusting him. 
Are you looking, or, or are you looking for satisfaction somewhere other than Him? If I could only have this or do this, then I would be happy. That's a lie. If you're not content in Him and satisfied in Him and with Him, then you're not content at all. All this other stuff is just demonstrating how discontent you are. It's magnifying who you are. But when you find contentment in Christ and in the body of Christ, suddenly the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Hope looks ahead to God, to what he will do in the future. We look beyond the moment. We peer into the future with faith and with hope. And when we arrive in the new heavens and when we arrive at the new earth, faith and hope, in a sense, will vanish because we won't need them anymore. And what will remain is love. And that brings us to chapter 14. On the other side of the love chapter, Paul turns our attention from the private to the public. The goal is for our private gifts to come together as a symphony, not to puff up individuals, but rather to build up each other in love. We are to be built up as a spiritual house. We're not simply an accidental collection of private individuals waiting to be noticed. The gift of tongues is used as an example in chapter 14. If everyone is speaking in a private language or seeking our own personal interest, then the church becomes a place of unintelligible discord. Only when a love for the church and an interest in our fellow members is the overarching force will we live in harmony and beauty. Paul argues in these chapters that our whole reason for coming together as a church family is to build one another up in love. Do you personally love Jesus? Do you Here's how you'd know. Do you love what Jesus loves? What does Jesus love? His people. So that's where Jesus wants you to show him how much you love him is by how much you love his people. It's not Jesus in your heart, just you and Jesus alone in your room. That's a cop-out. There's, there's an element of truth, of course, to that. Jesus should be in your heart. But the way we know he's in your heart is it comes out of your fingertips and it comes out of your mouth and you do things and you serve his people that he died for. Are you prepared to follow and imitate the love of Jesus? That's where the rubber hits the road. Then you'll love the church. You'll love his people because that's what he loves. And you'll earnestly and eagerly sacrifice yourself for the body of Christ. You'll give because so much has been given to you. And if we want our churches to be faithful and hopeful places, in other words, we want our churches to be full of faith and full of hope, then this kind of fervent love of the brethren has to start, and it must start with you. 
14.20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. Paul expands on this in the context of why the church is so important in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles uh, to be apostles and prophets. There's the Bible. Some evangelists or missionaries and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of the ministry, your ministry, not my ministry. The word ministry can be translated service, for the work of service, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For the, in other words, you're part of the body and you're going to help make the body healthy. You're going to build it up, make it strong. Till we all come to the unity or the communion of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And notice what's set over against being immature children who are blown about by all kinds of junk. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, that's all of us, joined and knit together by what each what what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part, that's you, does its share, causes the growth or maturity of the body for the edifying or building up of itself in love. You getting a theme here? We, like people... Who are like us, mainly because we like ourselves. But we must remember that this is not my church, it's not your church, it's Christ's church. The church is comprised of His people, and it's not my private club. So it's easy to come here and just hang out with my little group of friends. I look. I, a friend of mine has recently gotten chickens for eggs, and he was going to get some more chickens. And he asked me, so now if I get the new chickens, how are they going to integrate with the old chickens? I said, they're not. You'll look out there, and there'll be this group of chickens and this other group of chickens. Now, eventually, you know, two or three years, they'll finally start to mingle, but the old birds of a feather flock together. Uh, there's a temptation for us to do that even in the church. There are certainly natural coalitions and things, people our age, friends that we're closer to. But I want to remind you of the necessity that you get out of that circle. That you step outside of your comfort zone because God has called you to serve the whole body, not just your little niche. Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. So who is it that we're to minister to? We can't grow as a church, not as a church that is pleasing to Christ, without getting our hands dirty. 
A few weeks ago, I went through all the one another passages in Sunday school. Not going to do that today, but let's just suffice it to say there are a bunch of them. Pray for one another, serve one another, love one another, put up with one another. So why are we here? Has the last 26 years of struggle, ups and downs, been worth it? And are you up for another 26? And as I pointed out at the beginning of this sermon, we're all broken people, but keeping it all in perspective is critical if we are going to maintain faith, hope, and love. Paul opened his letter to the Corinthians with this reminder, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It sounds like I'm describing this group. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ who became for us the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Our ending place is quite different from our starting place. Paul writes in Colossians 1, Him we preach, Jesus we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man, every individual man and woman, perfect in Christ, mature in Christ. Are you satisfied? Are you settled in? You think you've come far enough? You've got your ticket punched to go to heaven? You're, that's, that's really all that matters, right? Wrong. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If if you've come as far as you can go, then uh, I'm not sure why you're still here. You're here because God has things for you to do. You say, I don't know what they are. Well, get busy finding out. Talk to somebody. Read a book. Think about it. Look around. Ask some questions. To love one another in spite of what we were. And Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And now this wouldn't be so dramatic if it wasn't so difficult. When the world sees a bunch of former sinners turned into saints, when they see such enormously diverse people of all kinds of backgrounds, ages, and experiences, experiences, loving and sacrificing and serving each other, then the world will be forced to take notice. This fits in with what we heard this weekend about hospitality. When, when, when the world sees us being hospitable to one another, and then we extend that hospitality outside our walls to the world... We're imitating God. We have, by the grace of God, in all these, in these few years we've been here, come a long way. Our past is filled with Christ's people who have put up with us, who've helped us, who helped us get this far, and our future is calling us to do the same for others. 
The church belongs to Jesus Christ. She doesn't belong to you and me. And in spite of this incredible diversity and complexity, the church of Jesus Christ has been directed, has been orchestrated by him to accomplish all his holy will throughout the ages. And so as we reflect upon our little part of the ocean of God's kingdom that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, uh, I encourage you to remember that you are part of God's covenant people and therefore you are important, an important part of his kingdom. I'll close with Philippians 3.12, not uh, 3.12 through uh, 14. Paul says, not that I've already attained or am, or am perfected or mature, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know our tendency to be easily irritated and offended by others. The slightest of things provokes us. And yet our provocations against your holiness uh, are infinitely greater than any that we have ever experienced. When we were alienated and enemies, you moved to reconcile us to yourself by way of giving us your only begotten Son. In this, you demonstrated your great love for us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be imitators of your love and the love of Jesus. Teach us to embrace all the aspects of love that are set forth in 1 Corinthians 13 and to demonstrate them toward one another. We long for the world to look at us, to see the sacrificial love of Jesus. May we practice it first in this family, in this church, and then may we export it to our homes. May it be seen in our marriages and in our children. And may our extended family and neighbors see it in no uncertain terms. And may all the world know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the true evidence that we are your disciples indeed. Amen. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This farewell discourse from Jesus to his disciples is seen among the most intimate in the New Testament. It's full of comfort, challenge, and hope. Jesus is so overwhelmed uh, by the fact that he's going to leave the disciples behind, uh, excuse me, yeah, and he's only been with them for a short while, and now he has to go. And the disciples have learned so little, understood so little, grasped so little of what their master has been doing in their midst. How are they going to cope without him? The next three chapters of the Gospel of John will provide the answer as Jesus makes the disciples 
solemn promises about the coming of the Holy Spirit who will continue to guide them as he himself had done. But before he even gets to that, he has something else to offer them. The simplest, clearest, and hardest command of all, love one another. Without that, everything else falls short. So let's not miss that point. Jesus describes it as a new commandment. But love, of course, is central in many parts of the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, commands the Israelites to love their neighbors as themselves. But the newness isn't so much a matter of never having heard words like this before. It's a matter of the mode of this love, the depth of this type of love. Jesus says that we are to love one another the same way that he loved us. Let that soak in. It's been hard for the disciples up to this point to even appreciate what Jesus has been doing on their behalf, and now he's telling them to copy him. As with the foot washing, they are to look back at his whole way and manner of life and to find in it a pattern, to find in it an example and a power. To wash someone else's feet, you have to think of yourself like a slave. Love is all about the other person. It overflows into service, not in order to show off uh, how hard working it is, but because that's its natural form. This is to be the badge that the Christian community wears before the watching world. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are tempted to despair when we consider our trials and tribulations. As Jeremiah declared, I will remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Lord, we too often lament and cry for help, for we are frail, and we are often in anguish. As we seek for renewal and strength, may we find it where this prophet found it the only place where it may be found. May our mood be dramatically changed as we say with Jeremiah, yet this I call to mind and therefore have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. Amen. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in, in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.